Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A downed missile hits an apartment in Ukraine. At least one person killed a day after a UN court ordered Russia to stop its military operations. Learn how the federal interest rate hike will affect you. Home loans, car loans, and credit cards will all be affected as the Fed seeks to tame spending. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis defends his state's new guidance on the risks and benefits of the vaccine for children. DeSantis says Florida is a free state and parents are the ones who can make those decisions for their kids. Rallies protesting violence against Asians unfolded in cities across the country. The events marked the first year of a mass shooting in Atlanta that killed eight women. The war in Ukraine entered its fourth week today. Russian forces are still blasting cities, but no longer making progress on the ground, according to Western countries. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. At least one person is dead and three are wounded after a downed missile hit a residential building in Kyiv early Thursday morning. It damaged the outside of the building and apartments inside are strewn with debris. Ukraine's emergency services said they evacuated residents and put out a fire. One local man said Russia attacked them and they don't know what for. You better not ask how I feel. I'm more than furious. Russia calls its actions in Ukraine a special operation <laughs> to demilitarize its neighbor. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says peace talks continue. My priorities during the negotiations are absolutely clear. The end of the war, guarantees of security, sovereignty, restoration of territorial integrity, real guarantees for our country, real protection for our country. A Russian spokeswoman said they're discussing military, political and humanitarian issues. She said Russia's demands are simple. We hope that Kyiv will finally realize the inevitability of demilitarization and denazification in Ukraine and its transformation into a neutral country. Earlier Wednesday, the Kremlin said negotiators were discussing a status for Ukraine similar to that of Austria or Sweden. Both are members of the European Union, but not members of the NATO military alliance. Meanwhile, the UN's top court ordered Russia Wednesday to immediately stop military operations in Ukraine. The court is profoundly concerned about the use of force by the Russian Federation in Ukraine, which raises very serious issues of international law. The final vote was 13 to 2. The Chinese regime sided with Russia in voting against the decision. Ukraine filed its case shortly after Russia invaded, saying Russia's apparent justification that it was acting to prevent a genocide in eastern Ukraine is unfounded. Although the ruling is binding, the court has no direct way to enforce it. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping are set to have a discussion on Friday. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the talk is part of an effort to keep the lines of communication open between the two countries. Her statement comes after a U.S. diplomatic cable said China might be interested in providing military and financial help to Russia. The last known time Biden and Xi had a conversation was in November. Back then, they had a three and a half hour virtual summit. Over three million Ukrainians have already fled their country. And today's Dan Skorback is on the ground in Lviv, which is about 45 miles from the Polish border. On Wednesday, he visited a train station, which is now the central hub for refugees before they leave the country. For Ukrainian refugees, if you want to leave to Poland, most likely you will come through Lviv. At this train station, the authorities organized a room specifically for women and children ages of zero to three years old. Local volunteers dressed up in bear costumes and dinosaur costumes and give out free candy to cheer up the kids. We have a room here for mothers and children. We have a small hygiene supply. Some 1,200 volunteers staff this station 24-7. They offer information, security, and anything from heating barrels to medicine to moral support which many mothers need. It's about keeping the mothers calm. When the mothers feel calm, that calmness transfers to the children, and they understand then that there is no war here, that they are just making friends and traveling. 
Christina herself is a mother of a young child. She has been volunteering at the train station for two weeks now. Her shifts are eight hours long. She says it's necessary because many mothers who come here are stricken with sheer panic, and that affects the children. They are little heroes. Some of them travel for 20 hours on the train, some even 30 hours, with mothers holding their newborns in their arms. These children are receiving an imprint on their soul, for sure. A great spirit within them will rebuild our nation. We also met Nastya, who escaped from Kramatorsk, near contact line between Ukraine and Russia-controlled regions. She told us that she won't be away for long. When will you come back? when the war will end. Of course, there's a little bit of crying here and there, but the atmosphere is rather hopeful. Dan Skorbak, NTD News, Ukraine. For weeks, the train station at Shemizil, Poland, has been a conduit for men returning to Ukraine to fight against Russia. But now, Ukrainian women are queuing for hours to catch a train back into the war zone to join their friends and families. We hear from some women who are risking it all to return to their besieged country. The rail line from Ukraine ends at Platform 5 at the train station in Shumashil, Poland. After refugees walk off, this same train will go back. For weeks, it's mostly been men returning to join the Ukrainian fight against Russia. But in front of the sign reading, Train for Ukraine, women are waiting hours for a ride back into the war zone. Near the front of the line, we found Tatiana Veremchenko. She came to Poland three days ago to bring her two adult daughters to safety. Now the 40-year-old is going home to a town in eastern Ukraine near the Russian border. Ukraine is equally important for men and women, she says. We're the real Ukrainians. Women have the strength and will and the heart as well. By our count, women accounted for about half of the passengers in this line waiting to cross the border back to Ukraine. Standing with several women, we met Maria Halligan. She's going to Kiev to be with her husband and family to fight, in her words, Russian terrorists. If you know what you need to do, it's impossible to feel nervous or something like this. If I have to do this, I will do it for my country, for my relatives, for my friends. Before she leaves, Maria shows us a heart-shaped Ukrainian flag given to her by Polish children to protect her. Those returning walk past a carriage that reads, safety above all, but the train leaving platform five disappears into a war zone where safety is a dream. A Ukrainian family made it to Florida days after Russian troops started targeting their home in Kyiv. Here's that story. When Yulia Gerbut fled Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, with her sons, 11-year-old Nikita and 14-year-old Max, she packed what she could, including this candle. You can't imagine how many times I kissed this candle. I have. And she came here to Orlando, Florida to stay with Megan Yokas, a woman who 20 years ago hosted Yulia during a student exchange program. She really has been like a daughter. A daughter who loved life with her boys in her Kiev home. But in the early morning of February 24th, Bombs started going off, and Yulia called her host mom. While talking to her, I saw the explosion from my bedroom window, and that's when I was really scared. Yulia says she had to hang up. Yulia and the boys rushed to the one room in the house with no windows. They were shocked. Nikita started crying. Hours later, more signs of war. I saw this helicopter which was throwing fire rockets from both sides of it. As Yulia drove away with Nikita and Max, she agonized over leaving her third son Martin behind. The grave of my son is left there and obviously I can't take him with me. Martin died of cancer in 2019. He was four years old. After four days of traffic jams, a stop at a shelter guarded by Ukrainian military, and eating at outdoor mass feeding kitchens, they ended up at a refugee camp in Slovakia. 
After escaping their new reality at home, they fled to Orlando. And last week, Yulia enrolled her sons in school. The images of war still fresh in their minds. I heard explosions and I heard shooting. Uh, I was super scared and the first like two, three hours of driving, I was listening to every sound and begging to not hear those explosions. Yulia fears for the life of her 72-year-old father who's in Maripol, a city where civilian buildings, including the maternity hospital where Yulia was born, have come under shelling. Thousands have died. I haven't heard from my dad for 12 days. I don't know if he's alive. Despite the fog of war, this mother says, in a way, she managed to bring little Martin with her. I can light the candle and, you know, pretend he is with us. So no matter where we will end up, we'll have a candle to light. Next, we hear from the CEO of a business review website, Michael Podolsky. He's in New York, but his company is headquartered in Kharkiv. He says he's had to relocate 160 of his employees to western Ukraine to get them to safety amid Russian bombings. At the same time, he explains that his website is writing shaming reviews of companies operating in Russia. That's because he says they're paying Russian taxes and thereby helping Russia make bombs. He highlights the recent bombing in Mariupol to make his case. They dropped a bomb on the theater and for the past four days, I know for a fact, humans, civilians were hiding in that theater. It was all over social media in Ukraine, and they dropped, I believe, one-ton bomb on that theater. It's probably 2,000 people that were just lost today, civilians. And in Kharkov, same story happening, right? There are people that are getting uh, killed, uh, people losing their limbs. Uh, it's horrible. It's real war. It's not uh, cinematic. It's not pictures. It's not pretty pictures. So, so you're only uh, shaming these companies that are associated with Russia's military. Is that correct? No, that is not correct. I am shaming companies that are still selling their products to Russia uh, because they are paying taxes in Russia, and those taxes make bullets and bombs. And I now, don't think... Michael, so you have I every right. I am praising Shell, I am praising McDonald's that chose to leave Russia and make public statements about it. But there are still many companies that you... Uh, many world brands that are still operating in Russia and paying you Russian taxes. Why? Why shall I, as a U.S. consumer, I am a U.S. citizen and I am a U.S. consumer, I don't want to work with U.S. company that also operates in Russia. Because Russia is running unjust war against Ukraine. For what? For the fact that Ukraine decided to go democratic instead of autocratic? So, Michael, you have every right to create reviews for these companies, but they have to look out for their bottom line. So how do you suggest these executives stop doing business with Russia? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying U.S. consumers must know all that, all we are, by stating that we are shaming the companies. No, I am, I think publicity is the greatest weapon. That's why this consumer was created originally 15 years ago. Right, because companies didn't want to do customer service, they just wanted to swipe, sweep it under the rug. Publicity is actually what makes companies change. So that was the reason why Pist Consumer was created. So by saying we are shaming brands, no, we're just going to tell U.S. consumers that this brand works in Russia and pays Russian taxes. That's all we are doing. We are just stating a fact. And then I will let U.S. consumer make a decision whether they want to buy from the same brand or not. For the first time since 2018, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates by a quarter percentage point. 
The Fed also hinted that more increases are ahead this year as it works to tame soaring inflation. The move comes despite the growing economic uncertainty in the U.S. caused by the war in Ukraine. Here's a look at what higher interest rates could mean for your wallet. Goodbye, ultra-low interest. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates by a quarter of a percent. Ongoing increases in the target range will be appropriate. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell making the announcement on Wednesday, saying it's a necessary move to combat soaring inflation. Despite the war in Ukraine, supply chain delays and COVID-19 still darkening America's economic horizon. The American economy is very strong and well positioned to handle tighter monetary policy. The idea is that as borrowing costs rise, consumers will spend less and ultimately lower demand will bring prices down to more normal levels. Interest rates stayed low throughout the pandemic to help the economy recover. But now that they're rising, financial experts say the impact will be felt widely from credit cards to car loans. Getting loans, getting uh, refinancing, uh, uh, getting your first mortgage is is going to be a lot harder as these uh, interest rates go higher. Here's a breakdown of what you can expect. First, when it comes to credit cards, because most have a variable rate directly tied to the Fed's interest rate, experts say prepare to see your annual percentage rate rise. If you have, you know, excessive credit card balances, you should really want to try to address that and get that down as, as fast as possible. Also, home loans will be impacted. Experts say both long-term fixed and adjustable mortgage rates could likely climb. And finally, some private loans with a variable rate could also be impacted. Experts say now may be the best time to look into refinancing. A major fire broke out early this morning in the Queens Flushing neighborhood. The New York City Fire Department is still battling the blaze. Flames first occurred around 6 a.m. in a one-story shopping mall on Main Street. The building houses more than 30 kiosks selling clothing and other goods. The fire has since intensified and is now on the fifth alarm. Fire crews swarm the scene, now involving about more than 40 units and 200 firefighters. According to the FDNY, there are no civilian injuries or missing people at this time. Sources say the number seven train to Flushing was suspended during morning rush hour. This was due to smoke detected inside the Main Street station. New York City is warning businesses and residents to keep windows closed due to heavy smoke conditions. Firefighters say they expect to be on the scene all day and possibly into the night. Nearby businesses will remain closed, at least throughout the day. Investigations are underway. One year has passed since a mass shooting of women in Atlanta. In New York and Georgia, people gathered for rallies to protest violence against Asians. And bias training for all. Near Times Square in New York City, a rally was held against violence toward Asian women. New York State's governor called for a break in the silence. But we can tolerate hate no longer. We will stand together, united in a common purpose. The event was to commemorate a mass shooting in the Atlanta area one year ago. Eight women, six of whom were of Asian descent, lost their lives. The killer was identified as 21-year-old Robert Aaron Long. The shooter said he was targeting sex workers. The anniversary comes just days after an Asian woman in New York was attacked. She was punched more than 100 times. Police are calling it a brutal hate crime. In Atlanta, Georgia, the site of the shooting, people from the local Asian American community gathered to mark the one-year anniversary of the tragedy. It's um, personally very triggering, right? We are at our first anniversary of the March 16th um, shooting, and already our hearts are heavy, our souls are hurt, we're angry. On the stage, a man struck a gong eight times to honor the lives lost in the shooting. An attorney working on the case said she wanted people to learn better the history of Asian Americans in the country. I think that's critical for all Americans to understand that we are part of the fabric of American society. And once you know us, you're not going to target us with racial hatred and violence. That's our hope. Similar events also took place in a dozen other cities, including Houston, Detroit and San Francisco. Americans protesting anti-Asian violence gathered in Atlanta and other U.S. cities yesterday. The event marks one year since a mass shooting in Atlanta-area spas, largely of women of Asian heritage. In San Francisco, a group trained in self-defense to protect themselves from violence against the community. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. 
Thank you, everyone. Advocates organized events in a dozen cities, including Houston, Detroit, and San Francisco, to raise awareness about violence committed against people of Asian descent, highlighted in recent days by the beating of a woman in New York. At the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco, the group Asians Are Strong organized self-defense classes for women. More and more, I mean, that is the most top of mind thing for everybody, right, is safety. You know, your people are getting attacked, and on this day, we're commemorating when six Asian women were murdered last year in Atlanta. Oriana Tom, a tech worker who lives in Los Angeles, said it was important for her to be there. To be here for, to commemorate what had happened a year ago in, in Georgia um, means quite a bit. I think that um, in, in celebration of those that have passed, I do think that it does bring a lot of the, um, everyone in the community together, and so this is just one way of doing so. The class was designed specifically with women in mind for both self-defense and bystander intervention. We want to provide resources for women and Asian women specifically, and what we're doing today is teaching basic fundamental self-defense techniques and bystander intervention training for them as well. And we're going to go through concepts and scenarios that are more common to females and how to use their body and their strength to their advantage to get out of situations for them. President Joe Biden said in a statement on Wednesday the shootings had forced Americans to look at anti-Asian sentiment and gender-based violence in the country. As he highlighted the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act enacted last year, a bill aimed at combating violence against Asian Americans. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. South Dakota's governor signs a bill that bans government entities from accepting outside funds to run elections. Governor Kristi Noem said the bill was necessary after Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife donated millions ahead of the 2020 elections. The money was funneled to state and local officials to run the election in certain ways. Wisconsin Special Counsel Mike Gableman calls it election bribery. He says... Cities that accepted the grants were forced to abide by conditions. Nome says the new law will protect the state's elections from influence and uphold election integrity. It mandates all costs related to an election be paid by the county through funds that come only from the government except for gifts of a nominal and intrinsic value. A spokesman for Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife told the Epic Times that the couple stepped in when the country when the country's election system faced challenges due to the CCP virus pandemic. However, U.S. Congresswoman Claudia Tenney said only 10% of Zuckerberg's donations went to right-leaning counties and that it gave Democrats a clear advantage over Republicans. Three different challenges to Texas voting laws have been knocked down by a federal appeals court. The Fifth Circuit denied a 2020 challenge to the state's ban on straight ticket voting on Wednesday. Then, in a second ruling, judges denied a pandemic-related challenge to the Lone Star State's mail-in voting regulations. The third case to be shut down was a 2019 lawsuit targeting Texas's verification rules for mail-in ballots. In all three cases, the Fifth Circuit said the lawsuits failed on procedural grounds. The Mississippi governor signed into law a bill that prohibits critical race theory in school. The bill states that no publicly funded school shall direct or compel students to affirm that any sex, race, ethnicity, religion, or national origin is inherently superior. Governor Tate Reeves says across the country, children are being subjected to classroom exercises that require them to declare themselves either oppressors or oppressed based on the color of their skin. The Mississippi Center for Public Policy in a report says that public universities in the state have adopted language that reflects critical race theory indoctrination. The report says that critical race theory is best thought of as a form of Marxism. A spokesperson for the Mississippi Department of Education superintendent told the Epic Times that the department does not have evidence that CRT is being taught in Mississippi public schools. Annual drug overdose deaths have reached another record in the U.S. There are an estimated 105,000 drug overdose deaths in the 12-month period ending October 2021. That's according to preliminary data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In the 12-year period ending October 2021, about two-thirds of the overdose deaths 
in the U.S. involved synthetic opioids like fentanyl. It's a stronger and faster-acting drug than natural opioids, and over the past two years, the number of overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids has nearly doubled. Millions of bottles of airborne gummies are being recalled due to an issue with their containers. The Consumer Product Safety Commission posted the recall notice on its website Wednesday. It says the company behind Airborne has received 70 reports of the cap or seal popping off of bottles. 18 reported minor injuries. One reported an eye injury requiring medical attention. Because of this, RB Health is pulling more than 3 million Airborne gummies bottles off of the shelves. The recall affects select 63 and 75 count bottles in blueberry pomegranate, orange, and assorted fruit flavors. The gummies were sold at several retailers and online from May 2020 through February 2022. There's a link on shiftvitamins.com with more information on the recall. Coming up, there could be a link between COVID-19 infections and diabetes. Diabetes is becoming more common in kids who've had COVID, and some scientists are looking into this. More on that in just a minute here on NTD News. Following new guidance for parents over the vaccine for kids in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis stands behind his health department. The guidance says that children aged 5 to 17 may not benefit from taking the vaccine, but the department recommends that children with underlying conditions are the best candidates for it. Here's what DeSantis told reporters on Wednesday regarding what he calls a low risk that COVID poses to healthy children. But I think a lot of parents were feeling pressured to do it even though they didn't necessarily think that was the right thing to do. And so in Florida, we're a free state. You can make those decisions. DeSantis said Florida Surgeon General Joseph Latipo is leading on this and that Florida's leading the way on rational guidance regarding COVID vaccines in children. The state's guidance doesn't go so far as to recommend that healthy children do not get the vaccine. Even still, there has been outcry over the guidance going against the CDC's advice. That advice says all children, except for a few with some conflicting medical situations, should get one of the vaccines. The Florida guidance cites trial data from Pfizer. It's data that Latipo says is evidence that healthy children without underlying conditions have a limited risk of severe illness due to COVID. He also cited CDC data that indicates most children in the country have recovered from COVID And he cites a recent study from New York researchers that shows the protection from Pfizer's vaccine declines rapidly, especially against infection. Though a Vanderbilt professor told the Epic Times that she disagrees with the state's new guidance, that professor is Catherine Edwards of Pediatrics. She says all children between 5 and 11 years old should be vaccinated. She says the risk of disease is greater than the risk of myocarditis, which is heart inflammation that has been reported at higher rates in youth following the vaccine. New Hampshire is closer to becoming the first state to offer ivermectin without a prescription. A state lawmaker says the effort would keep Americans from having to buy the drug from overseas. New Hampshire's House of Representatives approved a bill that would allow easy access to ivermectin. Republican Leah Cushman is a nurse and the bill's sponsor. She told the Epic Times in January that she had no doubt that access to human-grade ivermectin would save lives. Cushman added that the bill also safeguards doctors from any potential discipline for prescribing the drug. Alternative treatments like ivermectin have caused their share of controversy in New England. In Maine, the state suspended the medical license of one of the region's most prominent doctors. That's for prescribing ivermectin and other alternative treatments to the vaccine. The Food and Drug Administration remains opposed to the drug for treating COVID-19. They say it is not yet proven to be effective in treating the virus. Reports of diabetes have been rising during the pandemic, especially in children who've had COVID-19. Some scientists are exploring a possible link between COVID and diabetes. Here are the details. 
A recent CDC report looked at two large U.S. insurance databases that included new diabetes cases from March 2020 through June 2021. Diabetes was substantially more common in kids who've had COVID-19. 12-year-old Nolan Balsitis from Indiana is one of them. At the time, I didn't really know much about diabetes at all. We didn't have anybody in our family that had diabetes. Just six months after a mild case of COVID-19, Balsitis was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. He had all the classic symptoms, crankiness and lethargy. Tests showed his blood sugar levels were off the charts. He was saying he was feeling fine, didn't say anything. He just, I noticed he was irritable. Um, he just didn't look good to me. Both type 1 and type 2 diabetes have risen among American kids in recent years, but reports from some hospitals suggest the pace may have accelerated during the pandemic. Doctors worry that COVID-19 or sluggish pandemic lifestyles might be among things that push them over the edge. The hypothesis that infection can cause diabetes is definitely not far-fetched. And historically, it has been known with tuberculosis, with hepatitis C or HIV. Globally, more than 540 million people have diabetes, including about 37 million in the U.S. So if a person develops diabetes during the COVID disease, it doesn't absolutely mean that the person will end up with a permanent diabetes. However, if, uh, if we learn that um, COVID virus or SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, damages pancreatic uh, beta cells permanently and reduces the body's capacity to make and secrete insulin, that diabetes might be, uh, might be permanent. The CDC report only showed the association between COVID-19 infections and diabetes in children. It did not look into the reasons or causes. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is warning that the end of the public health emergency for COVID-19 would cut the agency off from critical data for tracking the disease. The CDC told the Epic Times that once the emergency ends, so do many requirements for reporting COVID-19 data. Critics say that the emergency is over because COVID-19 metrics have plunged since the latest peak. The CDC says it relies on voluntary reporting from local, state, and public health partners in collecting COVID-19 data. An agency spokesperson says the pandemic demonstrated how inadequate the reporting system is. It's also pushing for the White House or Congress to give it more authority for data collection outside of the emergency. Paul Mango worked for the Department of Health and Human Services during the Trump administration. He said in an op-ed that the current system requires many hours of data gathering from hospitals and other providers. He says if the CDC taps into electronic health records, it would take the strain off local providers. The White House is shifting to a new phase of its response to the pandemic, moving from crisis mode to emergency preparedness, and with it comes a changing of the guard. White House COVID-19 coordinator Jeff Zients will step down next month, and Ashish Jha, an epidemiologist and the dean of Brown University's School of Public Health, will take his place. Zients held the spot for more than a year. The goal now is to manage the pandemic with fewer disruptions to daily life. But it's a tricky time for the White House as it struggles to secure billions of dollars in funding for the future of the U.S.'s virus response. Zients's deputy will also depart the White House in April. But Biden calls Dr. Ja the perfect person for the job. The White House is working to resume some fun holiday traditions for the first time since the pandemic began. Since cases of the virus have dropped around the country in recent weeks, the White House is expected to host the Easter egg roll next month. Festivities were scaled back over the last two years due to the pandemic. The North Carolina-based Braswell Family Farms announced Tuesday it has been chosen to supply eggs for the event. Braswell will supply 15,000 hard-boiled eggs, and 12,000 rainbow-dyed hard-boiled eggs. The egg rolling tradition began in the 1870s on Capitol grounds. This year's Easter egg roll will take place on the south lawn of the White House, where it's been held since 1878. With COVID restrictions raised, New York City bars are gearing up for a historic St. Patrick's Day celebration. They haven't been able to celebrate for the past two years. In 2020, indoor dining was shut down completely in March, 
And last year, indoor dining was capped at 25%. Dublin House is on the city's upper west side. The pub is expecting big crowds today. They've been an Irish staple for 100 years. Owner Michael McCormickin says businesses have been tough. Business has been tough during the pandemic, and he's hoping Thursday's sales will give them a boost. He's ordered 15 kegs of Guinness to help keep up with the anticipated demand. That's three times more than they would normally order. Dublin House cut back on its hours during the pandemic, but hours are expanded for St. Patrick's Day. Thieves in North Carolina were able to bypass a gas station paying system to steal $1,600 worth of gas. Police are looking into how it was accomplished. Take a look at this surveillance video. It shows over a dozen cars stealing gas at this station after closing hours. The owner says a car pulls up next to the pumps and uses a device to hack the paying system. He says almost 400 gallons were stolen from the pumps. The owner is now using extra security measures to make sure this doesn't happen again. The water in a massive reservoir, known as a boating mecca, dipped below a critical threshold. This raises new concerns about a source of power that millions of people in the western U.S. rely on for electricity. Lake Powell's fall to below 3,525 feet puts it at its lowest level since the lake filled. This was after the federal government dammed the Colorado River more than half a century ago. Hotter temperatures and less precipitation mean smaller amounts of water are flowing through the Colorado River. Water scarcity is hardly new in the region. There are also hydropower concerns at Glen Canyon Dam in Arizona. This suggests that western states assumed was years away is now fast approaching. Federal officials are confident water levels will rise in the coming months once snow melts in the Rockies, but they warn that more needs to be done. If Lake Powell drops even more, it could soon hit Deadpool. This is the point at which water would fail to flow through the dam. Several southwestern states are taking both mandatory and voluntary cuts tied to Lake Mead's levels. About 5 million customers in seven states buy power generated at Glen Canyon Dam. In Wyoming, it's legal to take home roadkill. That's right. Last year, the state passed a law allowing residents to pick up dead animals from the roadways. And there's actually an app that helps confirm the animal was not killed illegally by entering the species and location where it was found. There are some restrictions, however. There are certain interstates where it's not safe to stop and collect roadkill. No one can collect roadkill at night. You can't take home grizzly bears, mountain goats, bighorn sheep, and some species of birds. And you have to take the entire carcass with you. You can't just take the head of a deer or the prime cuts of meat. Authorities are starting to identify the victims involved in a deadly collision in Texas Tuesday night. The crash involved the University of Southwest men's and women's golf team van. The student-athletes were on their way to a tournament when their vehicle was struck head-on by a Ford F-150 pickup Tuesday night. The collision sparked a fire, killing seven people on the bus. One of the victims was Lacey Stone, a freshman golfer at the university. Her mother remembers her as amazing, beautiful, smart, joyful, and an absolute ray of sunshine. The driver and passenger in the pickup were also killed. The National Highway Traffic Safety Board is investigating the incident. A Missouri police officer injured in a violent standoff last week was released from the hospital Wednesday. <laughs> Friends, family, and healthcare workers lined the halls and cheered as Joplin police officer Rick Hershey was wheeled out and then walked on his own. A gunman shot Hershey last Tuesday through his windshield when he used his police cruiser to block the suspect from fleeing a crime scene. Two other officers shot in the incident died. A fourth officer shot and killed the 40-year-old suspect. Coming up, a hospital in Ukraine has a tough choice to make with COVID patients. Do they move them and avoid a potential bomb or leave them and avoid other complications? Stay tuned to find out more.
Tens of thousands of Japanese households remained without power on Thursday morning after a magnitude 7.4 quake struck shortly before midnight, killing four. The walls trembled in Fukushima as Japan was hit by a powerful earthquake overnight. The magnitude 7.4 tremor struck on Wednesday night, killing four people and injuring dozens more. Large parts of northeastern Japan were thrown into darkness when the quake struck, and tens of thousands of households were still without power on Thursday morning. More than 4,000 homes had no water, with residents of one Fukushima city forming a long queue to fill up plastic tanks with water. Key transportation links were also severed. Aerial footage showed a bullet train derailed on a bridge. According to public broadcaster NHK, 16 of the 17 cars had jumped the track, but no passengers were hurt. Initially, tsunami warnings were issued, but those have since been lifted. The earthquake struck the same region where a major tremor triggered the Fukushima nuclear disaster 11 years ago. Events to commemorate the disaster were held across the country less than a week ago. Residents of Tokyo said the memories were still raw. I really feel bad for the people in Fukushima. This comes just when they are starting to forget about the 2011 disaster. When I saw the Pacific Ocean side around the Tohoku region, colored yellow to indicate a tsunami warning, I thought, not again. Back then, I mean, the earthquake last night shook stronger than that 2011 earthquake, but I had this hope that the damage wouldn't be as bad. No abnormalities were reported at any nuclear power plants after Wednesday's quake. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said that the government would be on high alert for the possibility of further strong tremors over the next three days. In a Kharkiv hospital, doctors must make the choice between leaving critically ill COVID patients connected to oxygen supply in their rooms or moving them to the safety of the bomb shelter, risking their lives. In Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city, which has been under Russian attack for weeks, an impossible dilemma is unfolding for Pavlo Nortov, the director of the Regional Infectious Diseases Hospital. To either move critically ill COVID patients to the safety of the bomb shelter in the hospital's basement or leave them connected to the oxygen supply in their rooms. Employees and patients able to walk come down here, but you know, most of our patients are on oxygen supply all the time. They can't be cut off oxygen. The ones in critical condition remain in their rooms. If we bring them down here, they will simply die. The Regional Emergency Service said on Wednesday that at least 500 residents of the city have been killed since the start of Russia's invasion on February 24th. A Kharkiv official said on Tuesday that more than 600 buildings have been destroyed, including schools, nurseries and hospitals. Nartov is relieved his hospital has been spared for now, but staff are preparing for the worst, having stocked up on medical supplies before the invasion began. The situation is difficult and tense. As you can see, sick people, covered windows, bombardment going on from morning till night. Thank God our territory, our hospital, has not yet been hit. The staff are now learning how to use a gas mask in case of a chemical attack. A special cafe in Kharkiv used to entertain guests with its resident raccoons, but now it's providing shelter from bombs amid continuous shelling in the city. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. The cafe is home to two little raccoons and used to attract animal lovers. Now it's a safe place for those who seek shelter from the ongoing attacks, thanks to its thick walls and basement location. There are seven people at the cafe at the moment. It's not that many. When there were 23 people here, it was more crowded. Now we can relax a little bit. Two people sleep here. This small room also serves for drying clothes. Towels are drying now. We amuse ourselves when we can. We make drawings, read books. The cafe has become a much more attractive shelter than the alternatives, underground parking lots or metro stations. Kharkiv resident Ruslan Porokovoy used to go to work at the Radio and Astronomy Institute during the week. But since the war started, he spends most of his time at the cafe. 
I knew that there was a cafe here. The first day of war, I was in a metro station, Botanic Garden. There were so many people. I met a friend there from the dormitory, and he advised me to move here, as it's much safer and calmer. The owner of the cafe, Marko Kolznikov, and manager Olga Zatspolina, bought mattresses and pillows for people fleeing their houses. And the raccoon's playfulness offered a small reprieve. But there are fewer visitors now. They don't have schedules, and they don't understand that it's the war and no one will visit them, pat them, bring new toys. We have some troubles with toys, but it's not essential. The most important is that we have fodder. Our raccoons start feeling that some sadness had come. They are not so active. They understand that there are fewer visitors and they are sad because of it. By the third day of the war, they were hosting 23 people. But there are only seven left now, as families from neighboring houses abandoned the city, along with many other residents. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Russia's war against Ukraine is angering people in the U.S., and some are taking out their frustration on Russian businesses and products. They're dumping Russian vodka and boycotting Russian restaurants. What do these business owners have to say? Since the beginning of Moscow's invasion of Ukraine, a strong anti-Russian sentiment has been spreading across the United States. In Glendale, California, a Russian food restaurant is facing a growing backlash. They now receive threatening phone calls multiple times throughout the week. We received a call like uh, three calls a week, four, two, and they start cussing, they start uh, yelling, they start using very bad words. Bad reviews also pour in on social media platforms. Although most of his employees are from the Russian region, the owner says he was born in Armenia. Besides Russian cuisine, his restaurant features food from his homeland and other former Soviet countries. Business down a little bit, like 30 to 20 percent down, but we, we, we go through. We go through COVID, so this is not going to be, I don't, I don't think so, it's going to be big, big deal. Moscow and Hudson is a specialty store in Manhattan. The majority of its products come from Russia and Ukraine. Shop owner Gleb Gavrilov said he also received some extreme phone calls requesting that he ask Putin to stop the war. If you're a normal person, 90%, you know, they understand. We all live here, we escaped all this madness there, and, you know, we'll, we'll get along. Everybody supports me, they come. Gavrilov said he is more concerned about the war's impact on exports from Eastern Europe. A Brooklyn-based distributor has warned him that supplies could run out at any time. The streaming giant Netflix is testing out a new way to get you to pay to use their service. Wednesday, Netflix announced two new features it's looking at that could stop users from sharing their passwords. The first feature would have subscribers add sub-accounts to their current account for people they don't live with. The new sub-accounts would be added to standard and premium plans, come with separate logins and profiles, and cost an additional 2 to $3 every month. Netflix is also testing a feature where users can transfer their profile to a new account or make it a sub-account. The company says they will be testing the new features in Chile, Costa Rica, and Peru over the next few weeks. No word on if it also plans to test the features in the U.S. NASA is testing the performance of its newest telescope project. The team is raving about the results they are getting from the James Webb Space Telescope and the images that bring space into clearer view. And I'm happy to say that the optical performance of the telescope is absolutely phenomenal. It is really working extremely well. And, um, and we said last fall that we would know that the telescope is working properly when we have an image of a star that looks like a star. The engineering images that we saw today um, are as sharp and as crisp as the images that Hubble can take, but are at a wavelength of light that is totally invisible to Hubble. So this is making the invisible universe snapping into very, very sharp focus. But as we were focusing on those bright stars, we couldn't help but see the rest of the universe coming into focus behind them, to see the, the more distant stars and galaxies coming into view. NASA's photo release isn't just about what's in the picture, but about how the new $10 billion telescope is working better than officials expected. Thousands of ancient galaxies appeared in the background of the star and the telescope's focus. 
Scientists say 18 different hexagonal mirrors had to fit in place just right, and they did. And all this is happening one million miles away from Earth. Even though the photo is a test image to make sure the system is working, it has made scientists on the project excited for future discoveries. Mexico's Anthropology and History Institute said archaeologists discovered a 500-year-old Aztec altar with 164 starfishes in Mexico City. The altar, which archaeologists believe was built around the year 1500, is considered Mexico's largest starfish offering discovered to date. Jaguar bones and other remains, such as seashells, were also found. One of the archaeologists who discovered the offering in 2021 said, we were very surprised when we realized that practically 80% of the deposit was covered by starfish. He and his team believe the fossils found correspond to a species known as chocolate chip sea star. According to the experts, the location of the altar suggests the offering was related to the war. The months delayed Miss World 2021 came to a close this week in San Juan, Puerto Rico. 40 semifinalists took the stage at the Coca-Cola Concert Hall. Who's the winner of the 70th Miss World pageant? And the winner of Miss World is Poland. Yes, the new Miss World is Karolina Bilowska from Poland. She beat 97 candidates to become the second Polish beauty queen in almost three decades. The first and second runners-up hailed respectively from the United States and the Ivory Coast. Miss World 2019 Tony Ann Singh passed the crown to Bilowska, now 23. The new Miss World has a bachelor's degree in management and is now pursuing her master's in business. She hopes to become a television host and motivational speaker in the future. Her modeling career began when she was 14, after she won second place in the Elite Model Look Competition. Since then, she has signed with different agencies. As her career grows, she also shows a passion for charity work. She is currently running a project that provides help to homeless people in Poland. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, Kevin Hogan. NTD News, New York City.